Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. First, on every single tier, you get completely ad-free episodes. And you get a say in what topics I cover on my podcasts. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Or you can go to buymeacupofcoffee slash CraigU. All of these links are also in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by, with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you, and promotion of something you're working on. And for $50, everything from the $5, $10, and $20 plus, you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. Just go to my username, Bairdo37. And you can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash c slash Canadian History X. If you want to find transcripts of every episode I've ever done, you can go to my website, CanadaEHX.com. And there's over 700 posts on Canada's history there. The area of Campbell River has been occupied by the indigenous for thousands of years. Archaeological digs in the area have found an extensive village and fishing site that was used for centuries. The land was primarily the territory of the island Comox people and the Coast Salish. During the 17th century, the Kwakwakwak people began to migrate in and establish themselves, leading to conflict with the Comox. Before the indigenous arrived, a 10-meter-tall glacial erratic fell off a glacier and landed along the future sea wall of Campbell River. According to the indigenous, the rock was originally a grizzly bear, that claimed he could jump from the mainland to the island. The great spirit told the bear that he would turn to stone if he touched the water. The bear attempted to jump and was able to make the jump, but his back paw touched the water, and as a result, he turned to stone. In 1792, Captain George Vancouver arrived aboard his ships the Discovery and the Chatham. The channel between Campbell River and Quadra Island was called Discovery Passage in honour of one of those ships by Vancouver. Archibald Menzies, who was on the ship, met with a local group of indigenous numbering 350 who spoke the Salish language. He would be the only European contact with the indigenous of the area, apart from the occasional visits by Spanish and English fur traders, but these visits were few and far between. It was not until 1859 that the HMS Plumper arrived to chart the area. It was at this time that the river was named Campbell River in honour of Dr. Samuel Campbell, who was the surgeon on board the ship. At this point, European settlement began to increase as the logging industry of the area started to thrive in the 1860s. The logging camps were temporary to start as loggers came in and cut the trees close to the shore before moving on. It was only after the logging along the shore had been exhausted that more long-term camps started to pop up, and with them, logging mills. 
At Duncan Bay, a settlement was planned with the name of Duluth, but this would not happen. It was not until the 1880s that Fred Nunn's settled in the area of Campbell River, and the community would begin to appear. By the early 1900s, there was a hotel and other establishments in the growing community, but the only way to Campbell River was by boat at this point. It was not until 1920 that the first road came through, and Campbell River started to become a regional centre. It was also around this time that fishermen, both looking to make money and those who did it as a hobby, started to notice Campbell River. They would come to the area and try to catch the Taiyi salmon, which was larger than other salmon, coming in at 30 pounds or more. The Taiyi Club of British Columbia would be established in 1924 to regulate and protect the growing industry in the area. The club's origin actually dates back a bit further to 1904 when Charles Thulin and his wife arrived in the area. They would build the Hotel Willows, which became the first headquarters of the Taiyi Club. And for the next two decades before the club existed, anglers would come to the community and stay at the hotel as they went fishing. Cars from the United States and throughout Canada would be seen in greater numbers as time went on until the club was officially formed. Today, the Taiyi Club is the oldest organization in Campbell River. It is also thanks to the growth of the fishing industry that Campbell River builds itself as the salmon capital of the world today. Thanks to the growth of the fishing industry, the first commercial wharf was built along Pier Street. It was here that Union steamships would stop to load and unload freight, as well as passengers who were coming to take advantage of the fishing opportunities. Pier Street would actually become one of the most important streets in the community. It was along the street that the first barbershop, first general store, and first cafe were all built. The streets and its buildings, for the most part, still stand to this day, and any visit to Campbell River should include a stroll along the historic Pier Street. As shipping increased in the area, there was a need to make sure everyone stayed safe on the water, no thanks to Ripple Rock, which I'll talk about just a little bit later. In 1916, the Cape Mudge Lighthouse was built to replace the original smaller lighthouse that was built in 1898. The lighthouse would stand 40 feet high and was made of reinforced concrete with an octagonal lantern that kept ships away from the shore. The lighthouse actually continues to stand to this day and it represents the efforts of the federal government to establish aids to navigation for ships on British Columbia's coast. The development of the Discovery Passage is also strongly linked to the Cape Mudge Lighthouse, as well as to the Klondike Gold Rush for the original lighthouse, due to the many ships that went through the passage on their way with prospectors hoping to strike it rich in the Yukon. In 2015, the lighthouse was designated as a Heritage Lighthouse. One interesting aspect of the lighthouse is that just below where it stands, you can find ancient petroglyphs of abstract figures carved into the rock by the indigenous centuries or even thousands of years ago, and you can see it when there's low tide. In the 1920s, Painter's Lodge was opened by Ned and June Painter. These lodges cater to the fishers who came to the area to catch salmon. It was here that the Taiyi Club would rent out rowboats to anglers. In 1938, the couple moved their operation to the oceanfront, and the resort still stands there today. June Painter was instrumental in the success of this lodge, and the couple would sell the lodge in 1948 once it was a major success. This lodge would have many distinguished guests including John Wayne, Bing Crosby, and Bob Hope. Unfortunately, the lodge burned down in 1985, but it was soon rebuilt and continues to operate to this day. 
1927, a boat called Motor Vessel BCP-45 was built at the Burrard Shipyard in Vancouver. It would then go into service in the West Coast fishing industry. For decades, it operated successfully in a variety of roles, and its first 14 years were spent under a cannery license, and it was the first boat of its kind to be owned and operated by an Indigenous person. As time went on, those old wooden boats fell out of use, and today it remains one of the oldest and best-preserved examples of its class of vessel. Due to its historic nature, it would be permanently housed at the Campbell River Maritime Heritage Centre. In 2005, it was designated as a National Historic Site of Canada, and if you're going to Campbell River, be sure to check out this ship as well as the Maritime Heritage Centre itself. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. In 1936, a man named Roderick Haig Brown came to Campbell River. He had been born in England in 1908 and was the godson of Lord Bowden Powell, the founder of the Boy Scouts. He came to Canada in 1926 and worked on Vancouver Island and in Washington. Upon moving to Campbell River with his wife, he started to rent a house that belonged to Red Pitcock, a founding settler of the community. When the neighboring house came up for sale, he bought it, and it was there he embarked on a writing career while building up the home he lived in with his family. This small home included a small farm that had a large garden, milk, and goats. As an avid fisherman, he was also concerned about the welfare of the fish in the river and the environment. He would become a trustee for the Natural Conservancy of Canada and an advisor to the BC Wildlife Federation. As the area was beginning to grow, new projects such as a hydro dam were proposed, and these threatened the natural environment he loved. It was thanks to him and his lobbying that the Moran Dam would be stopped, protecting the river ecosystem he loved. And throughout his life, he would write 25 books and over 200 articles and speeches, which would influence fisheries biologists, ecologists, and many others to look at how they impacted the world around them. He also served as the Chancellor of the University of Victoria from 1970 to 1973. Fifty years of rivers and fly fishing. It's quite a spell. One fishes to catch fish, of course, but there has to be a lot more than that. Style is important. Knowing the water and the fish, even more so. If fishing was simply a matter of catching fish, I would have given it up long ago. Fall comes gradually on the Pacific coast of Canada. 
There's a touch of death in the air. But if a fisherman has eyes to see, there's life and movement everywhere along the river. There's plenty to be learned above the surface, but until a few years ago, I had never really seen below. I turned to the mask and snorkel out of curiosity, wanting to know more of fish and water. I had no idea one would be able to move so freely or find so much beauty. The ethics of it concerned me a little. Should a fisherman be able to spy on his fish so easily? But I've decided I have a place here to watch and learn, but not to harm. It's best to work upstream using rocks and sunken trees for shelter. In late summer and early fall, the salmon come home from the sea. Occasionally, one can slide into a school of Thais, 40 and 50 pounders. A little further downstream is the other end of the cycle, a school of underyearling salmon. Roderick would pass away in 1976, followed by his wife Anne in 1990. Upon his death, the Victoria Times colonist wrote, quote, Roderick Haig Brown was well on his way to becoming a living legend and will surely join Emily Carr among giants on the West Coast. He brought his beloved Campbell River alive for readers around the world. No more dry humor delivered in immaculate English with a trace of smile. No more lyrical prose on seasons of the year as they touched his corner of Vancouver Island and were understood by people who read him everywhere. End quote. Their home would become the Haig Brown Heritage House, which is managed by the Campbell River Museum and the city of Campbell River. In 2016, he was named a National Historic Person. Ripple Rock sits at Seymour Narrows along the Discovery Passage in British Columbia. Close to Campbell River, it presented a significant hazard to boats coming through the area. George Vancouver wrote in his diary in 1792 that it was one of the vilest stretches of water in the entire world. Over the years, many ships would hit the rock that was only a few feet below the surface. The eddies that were formed by tidal currents around the rock also presented a significant hazard to the ships. Named by Captain Richards because of the standing waves that its summit made as the tidal current moved through the strait, the first large ship to ever hit the rock was the USS Saranac, which crashed into it in 1875 on its way to Alaska. From that point until 1958, 20 large ships and 100 small ships were sunk or badly damaged on the rock. And it's known at least 110 people drowned in accidents caused by this rock. As soon as the first ship hit the rock in the 1800s, it was decided that the rock had to go and an explosion of monumental proportions was needed. One plan had a bridge being built to connect Vancouver Island with Blue Inlet using the rock as a support, but that was abandoned in the 1860s in favor of eventually destroying the rock. In 1931, a Canadian Marine Commission recommended removing the rock completely, but it would be over a decade until the government gave permission to do so. The first attempt to destroy the rock with explosives was in 1943. Floating drilling barges were tasked with drilling into the rock to blast it to pieces. The approach was abandoned quickly as cables tended to break every 48 hours though. In 1945, another attempt was made using two large overhead steel lines, 
but this was abandoned when only 93 of the 1,500 controlled explosives were successful. In 1953, the National Research Council of Canada commissioned a feasibility study on planting explosive charges underneath the peak of the rock. Three companies, Northern Construction Company, J.W. Stewart Limited, and Boyles Brothers Drilling Company were granted the contract worth $3 million. The United Kingdom's Atomic Weapons Research Establishment were very interested in this explosion as it was going to be a very large, non-nuclear explosion. From November of 1955 to April of 1958, 75 men worked in three shifts building a 500-foot vertical shaft from Maud Island at a 2,370-foot-long horizontal shaft to the base of Ripple Rock. Two more shafts were built from the Twin Peaks. A total of 1,270 metric tons of Nitramax 2H explosives were used. This was 10 times what would have been used for an explosion above water. There were some worries that it would destroy Campbell River 40 kilometers away, while some worried that a tsunami would hit Japan or that millions of fish would die. A few people even theorized that it would even cause the big one, an earthquake many in British Columbia have been expecting for years. On April 5, 1958, at 9.31 a.m., the explosion took place. A total of 635,000 metric tons of rock and water were displaced by the explosion. Rocks and debris were thrown 1,000 feet into the air. The blast was large enough that it cleared 45 feet of vertical rock, providing ships with plenty of room to go over. On its snout, that great long snorkel that sticks out there is a 25-inch lens, and that'll pretty well put uh, Ripple Rock right smack in the middle of your living room when it goes up or out or sideways or whatever it's going to do in 2 minutes and 15 seconds right now. But we have our helmets on, we will have our mouths open, our eyes wide open, and we'll just stand here and watch like you're going to do. That placid-looking water at this moment is about to erupt. Actually, at this moment, the tide is flowing, ebbing, I should say. It's ebbing north at approximately 10 knots, and it is two feet above mean low water. The 20. 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, While it was a very large explosion, there was almost no noise as the water muffled the majority of it. As for the destructive aspects, there was a brief 25-foot tsunami and a few fish died, but that was it. The only damage that was reported was to a wall clock and a mining clock at Quadra Island. The RCMP were also on hand for the explosion to ensure no one would be anywhere within three miles. TV crews and engineers were housed in a bunker, 
and the explosion is now a national historic event and it was seen live on CBC television coast to coast. It was one of the first live coast to coast television broadcasts in Canadian history. On August 9, 1970, a child named Rod Brindamore was born in Ottawa, but he would come out to Campbell River as a child where he would begin to play minor hockey and he quickly excelled. He would be drafted in the 1988 NHL Draft, 8th overall by the St. Louis Blues, and he would play his first full NHL season in 1989-90, picking up 27 points in the team's first 24 games. A short time later in 1991-92, he'd be traded to the Philadelphia Flyers, and it was there he would develop his reputation as a shutdown center. By the time he left the Flyers, he had played 633 games, recording 366 assists, 235 goals, and 601 points. He would then go over to the Carolina Hurricanes, where he would find success leading the team to the Stanley Cup in 2006 over the Edmonton Oilers. So, you can guess, I am no fan of Brindamore. Congratulations to Jimmy Rutherford, Peter Laviolette, all the players on the Hurricanes. Rob Brindamore, I'm proud to present this to you. Upon his retirement, he was one of the last players to have played in the 1980s still in the game. During his NHL career, he had 1,184 points in 1,484 games, and he won two Frank J. Selkie trophies. And while he's not in the Hockey Hall of Fame yet, there is talk that he could wind up there someday. He would then become a coach for the Hurricanes in 2018, and in 2021, he won the Jack Adams Award as the Coach of the Year. If you'd like to learn more about the history of Campbell River, the best place to visit is the Campbell River Museum. The museum began in 1958 as an exhibit in the lobby of the Sport Fishing Lodge. The exhibit included artifacts collected over the years dating back to the pre-colonial era. By 1978, the collection had grown so large that there was a need for a new facility. Planning for this facility began in 1987, and in 1994, a 21,000-square-foot facility was opened. Today, the museum houses many exhibits, including a First Nations exhibit that has artifacts from 30 different First Nation groups. There is a Transitions Gallery that explores difficult parts of the past, such as residential schools, and there's the Logging in Jungles, which highlights the logging history of the area. The logging exhibit includes a Hayes-Anderson logging truck and a 1916 Empire Steam Donkey. A log cabin built of Douglas firs is also an exhibit, as is the sport fishing exhibit and the commercial salmon fishing exhibit. The Willis Hotel has been rebuilt as an exhibit, showing how it would have looked during its heyday in 1914, and there are also several temporary exhibits that change over the years. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Campbell River. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Mike Sullivan. Wendy Mills. 
Keelan Pregnitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.